Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Katie Stock. This programme is brought to you in association with the magazine I write for, Premier Christianity. And if you'd like a free sample copy of the latest issue, head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking to the chaplain to the Speaker of the House of Commons, the Reverend Rose Hudson-Wilkin. Rose, welcome to the programme. Hello, good to be with you. Well, let's start at the beginning. Mm. So you were born in Jamaica and you've described yourself as a cradle Anglican. Yes. What was your childhood faith like? Well, uh, I was baptised at the age of six months um, by an Anglican expat, Archdeacon Price. And he was there much of the time of my growing up in that local church. Um, And I still have this memory of him with big bushy eyebrows. Um, But but no, you know, we were there, we were at Sunday school, the adults went to an early 7.30 a.m. service, and the children went to the Sunday school, which was 9.30 and 11 o'clock, and that was nearby, just literally across the road. It was a, a little mission church that we had, and we were there every Sunday without fail. You had to be really ill not to, and I loved it. That was where I refer to it as where I cut my teeth in terms of ministry. Um, Because we didn't have a priest every week, it meant that a a very wise elderly church church lay reader um, actually allowed the young people in church to participate. So at a very early age, I was reading, I was leading prayers, and then at age 14, I was preaching. Wow, that's quite an achievement for mm. when you're 14 years old yes, and quite yes. a forward-looking yes. leader in the church. Yes. Um, so your mother left for England when you were very young. Mm. What effect would you say that's had on you? Well, it's interesting because I, I met her when I was approximately nine years old, when I met her. And it turned out that she left uh, shortly after I was one years old. So she was really a stranger to me. Um, But I grew up in an extended family. So it meant that um, I wasn't really sort of pining after a mother I didn't have with me. I knew there was a mother somewhere in a place called England. But, um, But life was very ordinary. Growing up with my sister, who was two years older than I I, I am. And, uh, um, you know, we played a lot. We got involved with chores, as we all had to do. And uh, it was business as usual, really. Mm. And you said earlier how, you know, in your mid-teens you were preaching. Mm. Um, when you were 14 years old, you had a, a dream, um, one that has stuck with you. Mm. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, I, I, I dreamt one night that... Um, Someone was, we have little verandas in Jamaica. And uh, I was on the veranda and someone called out to me from down below, asking me to invite them up. And I said, but I don't know who you are. I can't just invite you in. I said, no, no, it's okay. Invite me up. And, um, And I said, let me go put the light on so I can see who you are at least. No, no, they said, don't put the light on. Just invite me up. And for a moment I went to switched the light on and and heard this voice say, no, no, you can't do that. You cannot invite uh, that, you know, that's the devil. You cannot invite. And with that revelation, I began to praise the Lord for the revelation. Weird dream to have. And, And I was praising the Lord so loudly that I woke myself up and the rest of the household. And did you tell them why you were praising? Well, well no. Um, it, it was all very sort of disturbing, really, that I almost invited, <gasps> you know, the devil, whatever that was. And I couldn't go back to sleep. So I picked up um, the Bible. I thought, let me read the Bible before going back to sleep. That will help me. And the Bible fell open at Luke 4. 
and my eyes looked down, you know, I'm tired, and it was the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news and all that sort of stuff. And wow, that was really comforting. And it put me at ease, I felt at ease, and I went back to sleep. The next morning when I woke up, I was using a sort of daily bread type thing for my devotions. I picked it up, went to the day's reading, and it was the Isaiah passage that reflects what Jesus was reading. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And what did you think when you read that? I just felt, wow, what are you saying to me, God? And for me, that was the the thing that jumped out on me, that that was going to be my calling. Wow. That's quite a story. Mm. Have you experienced anything like that since? No, that was pretty unique. Maybe enough. <laughs> once one is enough for a lifetime, maybe. <laughs> yes. And so you um, joined the church army while you were in Jamaica. What made you want to join the church army? Well, unfortunately, there were no women in ordained ministry. So growing up with an overwhelming sense that God was, God was calling you to be a leader in the church... If there are no images, you begin to have that little question mark in the back of your head. Did I get it right or did I imagine that call? Um, Because after that occasion, that very special occasion, I became very familiar with the um, various passages in the Bible. The Jeremiah passage where, where God calls Jeremiah and he says, oh, I'm only a child. And God says, don't worry, I'm going to put, you know, the words, I'm going to give you the words. Um, the other Isaiah passage, whom shall I send, you know, and and um, the Old Testament, some of the Old Testament prophets. So it was, uh, it was a real sense that, yes, I think this calling is being affirmed, but where and how? And then I came across the church army because the the mission church that I went to as a child and grew up in have always been staffed by a church army individual. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll try this. This is the only thing that's open to me. I'm going to do this. And we had a female church army officers and all our church army officers at that time were trained here in the United Kingdom. So at the age of 18, I made my way to London to be trained. Wow, that's a, a big move at uh, 18 move. years old. And Huge. how did you feel before you went? Well, I was excited. I was really excited because I was following my heart. I was following this call and uh, um, it was pretty special, but also a little scary. I can imagine that would be scary. But when you were there, you Mm. met a young man called Ken. Yes, I did. um, Who is now your husband. Yes. Can you tell me a bit of your kind of first impression of him? Well, he was a year ahead of me. And uh, um, he tells me later on that on my very first day of arrival at the college, he was one of those who helped carry our luggage. I have no recollection of him on that day, I must admit. But the practice had always been that the first year, which I now was, would pray for the second year because they were going through what's called their assessment. So you do a year and then there's an assessment to see whether or not from all the reports, all the placements you've done, your academic work, whether you are going to be encouraged to go further on to complete the three-year training or whether that was the end of the road for you. And so I wanted to pray for someone who had a a problem with his vision. I thought, I want to pray for him. But by the time the list got to me, someone was already praying for him. And he had two other friends. And I thought, okay, I'll pray for one of those. But then they were already gone. And I thought, now, who else do I know on this list that I can pray for? And his name came up. And I thought, hmm, I know this guy. He plays the flute. I'll pray for him. Nobody's got him yet. I'll pray for him. So not your first choice at that point. He wasn't my first choice, (laughs) no. Um, But the flute was the connecting thing. I thought, I know this, you know, I know this other person, this name. Let me pray for him. And then I saw him um, a couple of days later and said, I'm praying for you. This is what happens. You get a husband. (laughs) It's the danger of going to study as well, I think. Absolutely, yes. 
So Ken um, is also ordained. Yes. Um, and like you, he's a, a chaplain, though, to a rather different group to you. He's based in Her Majesty's Prison, Downview. Yes. Um, which is a women's pr- prison. Yes. What is your experience of being a, a couple where both of you are in ministry? What's that experience mm. been like? Well, do you know, um, it has worked perfectly well because when you're both in ministry, you both understand the challenges of ministry. And, and you know, I've come home, for example, in the past... And I'm so tired and I've said to him, I'm going straight to bed. And then I make the mistake to put my head around the office door and the light is flashing on the phone. And I, you know, listen to the message and it is someone who is distressed because they've, their sister has died. And I'm back out in the car and off. I'm there. You know, not many partners will understand that, but there you know and I go out this is after 11 at night and spend an hour with someone who is mourning the loss of her loved ones and and there is mute there's a mutuality of understanding and a supportiveness with prayer and uh, interestingly neither of us would attempt to work together in the same place whether parish or prison or, or whatever and 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 uh, it, well, it's not necessarily that it's puzzling. I mean, there are lots of other clergy couples who work together quite successfully. But I think we know that that would be rather difficult for us because for me in particular, when is he speaking to me as my husband or as my incumbent or it wouldn't work? It's a bit messy. Sometimes that relationship can yes, be. Yes, but actually we help each other out. So in the past, you know, if I couldn't do one of my services, um, he would do it for me. And I've been in the prison and done things for him too. So that's always helpful if you have a sick day or anything like that. Yes, yes. So Ken was ordained priest in 1989. Mm. Yes. And you were ordained deacon a little bit behind him in 1991. But you didn't have the option then to be priested. Can you remember the atmosphere in theological colleges at that Mm. time? Well, at that time at Theological College, people were still talking about whether or not it would happen. Would it happen? Would women finally be accepted as uh, um, as priests within the church? And there is always that that sense of, but women can't be priests. You know, they've got you've got to be a man to be a priest. Um, women can't be priests because uh, um, we cannot have a woman being in charge. I've never believed any of that stuff. Even as a young child? Even as a young child. I remember as a young child actually saying to my, to my bishop, why is it that we have so many of our churches without priests and uh, and being starved of the sacrament because Jamaica is a very high church really we were staffed by london diocese uh, initially and and so we are told that the sacrament is vital and so i said to the bishop well why are we starving people of the sacrament that we say is so vital and he said well you know we are a sacramental church and we just haven't got enough priests. But there are women there that keeps the church open, that keeps it going. We're Anglicans, we don't do that. Um, so I've always felt from the beginning that that was nonsense and I still do believe it is nonsense. Okay. Yeah, I believe if we have been baptized, we're all called to represent Christ. And uh, it saddens me that we have these gatekeepers who says you can't because you're a woman or you can't because uh, you can't be in charge of a man. And But you were finally priested. I was. Finally, in 1994. Yes. Um, and you were among the first group of women who in my diocese, um, yes. were ordained priests. Mm. Um, how did the congregation that you served your curacy with um, react to a woman presiding, Pre- presumably the first time that they'd ever witnessed that? Yes. Um, you know, did you have any hostile reactions? Well, the hostility was much before that, um, because where I served my curacy as a deacon... They didn't want to have me over the headship thing. They were a very traditional evangelical church, very faithful, 
people who really loved the Lord, but who were convinced that a woman could not be in a role of leadership where there were men there. And, uh, and so they asked if they could have my husband instead of me. So I went to that church knowing that they didn't want me. And I was told that the PCC resigned on block um, because the vicar insisted on, on having me. I went there knowing all of that and decided, but actually feeling that God had called me there. Um, so it's the second time. First, I believe that God called me to be the ordained ministry when there were no women there in ordained ministry. And now that God had called me to this particular place where they didn't want me because I was a woman. But I felt that I was not going to engage with them about the rights and wrongs of it. I wasn't going to argue with them, get into any debates with them. I was simply going to be there and get on with ministry, which I did. I, I remember in particular um, an incident whereby I had hurt, uh, but no, I hadn't hurt my knee. I, my knee was hurt, but it needed surgery. And I had surgery shortly after I started. I had the surgery. And uh, um, the very next day, it was day surgery, I got my husband to drive me back to the parish and to leave me there. And I hobbled around on walking sticks because I remembered saying to myself, I'm not going to let anyone say, see, she's a woman, she can't hack it, or she's black, she can't hack it. The sad thing for me today is, with my hand on my heart, I don't know if I wouldn't do exactly the same thing again. And that's what saddens me. Um, but I had a great ministry there. Loved it. Loved the people. I always think it's important to love the people. You're called to serve. Loved them. And you know what? They loved me right back. They loved me right back. Did you um, see changes in that community through mm. you taking that approach? What, what changes did you see? Oh, yes. Well, the, the, the fact that the, these people who had thought not having her, don't want her, um, you know, they discovered, they discovered and they said to me, as I approached the time of my ordination to the priesthood, I want you to know, there's one lady who said, I want you to know that I was one of those who had resigned. But I must tell you now that I believe that God has called you. So here were these people who had changed their mind because they had seen something of a reflection of Christ in what I was doing. And so, uh, you know, there are times when you have just got to let the Holy Spirit does its work. You don't have to fight the corner. We don't have to fight for Jesus. We're fighting for him for the day that I have to fight for Jesus um, is a day when I have to think, hang on a minute. Who is this God? You know, if he is not big enough for the battle himself, then. So it's just taking an approach of, of love. Yeah. And, and letting the Holy Spirit change people's hearts. And let the Holy hearts. Spirit change people's hearts. You do, you do what God has called you to do. And you love the people in spite of those who may not initially. You love them. And love conquers in the end. And, 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 and they know. That's so encouraging and, yeah, to hear. Love conquers. Um, later on, you were in um, ministry in Hackney in, mm. in East London for over 15 years. Yes, 16 and a half 16 years. and a half years. And um, what do you miss most about working in Hackney? Oh, wow. Hackney was very, um, uh, it's, it was a significant, all my ministry I've loved, all everywhere where I've been in Litchfield Diocese, Wolverhampton, West Bromwich. But Hackney, perhaps because I spent so much time there, um, I was beginning now to see the children of the children that I had baptized when I first went there. Um, and you bond, you bond, and I bond, you know. Um, I'm not ashamed to say that I have wept. I have wept real tears from the moment, buckets full of tears, leaving them. Um, it's an area that is diverse, it is rich in uh, people, ordinary people, everyday people, people who have nothing, people who have something. But you know what? They're all God's people. And uh, it has been such a huge privilege to serve them. Yeah. 
You've said that um, you had a cricket bat at your front door oh, while you were in that vicarage in case of violent threats late at night at the doorstep. Yes. Not everyone would be able to minister in that kind of setting. <laughs> um, why did you feel called to it? Or did you know what you were letting yourself in for? I didn't know what I was letting myself in for, actually. I just, when I went there, one of the churches in particular, because I had two churches, one was very dilapidated and overgrown. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with it. Um, I wanted to make a difference. I felt I could make a difference. And, uh, um, and so, yeah, I, I felt that that was it. I could ch- make some changes there with the Holy Spirit. You know, it's when you see something and you don't just see what you see. You look behind what you see and you see something beautiful coming out of it. And that's what we did. And that's what you experienced there. Yes, yes. So in 2008, you mm. were appointed chaplain to the Queen. And now you're chaplain to the Speaker of the House of Commons. And that's quite a change of scene from, from Hackney, definitely. What do you see your role um, to be in Westminster? I've always believed that faith should be at the heart of public life. I think faith is who we are as a people. It is not a garment that we put on and off depending on the weather. And one of the things that I did notice when I first came to this country was the way in which faith was treated as a very private matter. So we don't talk about faith. We go to the theatre, we go to the cinema, we go to a restaurant, we come back and we can't wait to tell our neighbours, our family members, friends about the experience. We go to church and mum's the word. We don't say anything. And is that really in contrast from your upbringing? Oh, yes, most definitely. And so I wanted to encourage faith in the public square. I wanted to encourage people of faith to live out their faith, to be at ease with their faith. And people can be at ease with their faith. Even those who say to me, oh, I'm not religious. You know, with a smile and a twinkle. Of course you are. All you know, man is a religious animal. They find something to focus in on, whatever you might call that God of yours. Um, but, you know, ultimately my hope is that you will find um, God, as it were. So, so it was simply, for me, it was about wanting to encourage faith in the public square. And what has been your biggest challenge in, in your current role? What's my biggest challenge? I think perhaps my biggest challenge would be tradition. The British are great on tradition. And that's part of the the challenge for the Church of England as well. Um, With uh, uh, tradition, you know, people don't want to think outside the box because it has always been this way. And uh, um, what is a joy for me now is... uh, Although we have set prayers, every day when the house sits, I lead the prayers in the chambers, in the commons, not in the Lords, because the Lords have got the House of Bishops. Um, well, well, the, the Lords spiritual rather than the House of Bishops. There are a set number of bishops in the Lords, and they take turns leading their prayers there. Um, but I lead it in, in, the, in the commons. And so from time to time, although there are set prayers there, I change it. And from my perspective, I want the prayers to be living. So if something is happening in the community, in the wider society, internationally, I want us to reflect on that. And the, the, the feedback at first we had, Mr. Speaker had complaints, um, but Mr. Speaker is absolutely wonderful, very supportive, recognized you're the chaplain, you know, you're, you're, in this particular role, so we take our lead from you where this is concerned. And and I've had some amazing responses from members who say, your prayers sound so real. <laughs> said, of course they're real. I mean every word of it. Um, or people who just simply appreciated hearing something that is reflecting where they are and what is happening around them. 
And then when you were appointed by the speaker, John Burko, to um, be his chaplain, some critics said that Mm. your appointment was out of political correctness. Mm. And your name has been banded about when people have been considering who might be the next Bishop of London. If you were asked to be the next Bishop of London, do you fear that that same criticism of political correctness would be named? I I don't think... Do you know... (laughs) <laughs> I, I did say at the time that over 90, I think it was 97 people that applied for the, the role, the parliamentary role. Um, well, it was a three-part role combined. And I've always said if, if you had all that many people applying for a role and you shortlisted someone who was not, um, who did not have the essential criterias, then it's telling me something more about you than about me. Um, so, uh, you know... We had some eminent people on the interviewing panel, so I don't buy that. I, you know, every time when we say we want to have more women in particular roles or more black people in particular roles, we hear, oh, but we need the right person. They've got to be have the right qualifications. I mean, who is going to apply for something, you know, that they don't think that they can do or, you know, would be shortlisted? So. I don't buy that. Um, I don't think my name is going to be. It's the new. It's the press. I think um, playing playing games. Um, I don't think I'm ever likely to be the Bishop of London. <laughs> we shall wait and see. Well, that brings us um, mm. to the end of part one. But mm. do join us again in a moment as we hear more from Rose Hudson Wilkin, and we will be right back. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Katie Stock. This programme is brought to you in association with the magazine I write for, Premier Christianity. If you'd like a free sample copy of the latest issue, head to our website premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample and today on the profile I'm speaking to the chaplain to the speaker of the House of Commons the Reverend Rose Hudson Wilkin so Rose continuing on what we've been Mm. talking about in terms of um, race in the Church of England you um, have recently spoken out against the institutional racism in the Church of England Um, what practical measures do you think the Church could employ to rectify this situation? Well, I should say that, you know, for over 30 years, um, the church uh, has been challenged about its lack of visibility of minority ethnic leadership within the church. So the church created uh, um, a committee, the Committee for Black Anglicans Concerns, it was named when it first started. And then it was later renamed as the Committee for Minority Ethnic Anglican Concerns. Quite a mouthful. And that committee has worked very, very hard. They have produced lots of reports. They have uh, uh, pointed out so many areas um, that the church needs to be looking at. And yet very little has been done. I think very little has been done because uh, it has not been treated seriously. Um, it has not been seen as a priority within the, the, the church. If you think about it, um, you think about the numbers of uh, women. Once the church decided, the, the church saw that at, eventually saw that as a priority. And now, when they sit down to interview uh, or, or to shortlist, you know, they're asking, "Well, you know, have women applied, and why haven't they applied?" And nobody is saying. Have we got any minority ethnic people applying? Why aren't they applying? What are we going to do about it? It's not. It's just not seen as a priority. And yet, in our inner cities, if it was not for, if it were not for the minority ethnic people in the Church of England, the Church of England would not be represented in those parts of our inner cities. 
So the way you're describing it, it just sounds like it's not rocket science. You it just need to, to focus. Get on with it. It's not rocket science. Um, I've had young people, young men in particular, who have approached me. You know, they've been at a church for a very long time. They have um, served and yet not once have their priest said to them, tap on the shoulder, have you ever thought of ordination? No. So the reality is that as black people, we are not recognized as being ready for ministry. Potential ministers, we're not seen as potential ministers. When I first went to Hackney, I had a church warden who said to me that, I'm sorry, we're just not accustomed to people like you in positions of leadership. And he didn't mean you as a woman. She. 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 She didn't mean you as a woman. No. No. She meant you as a black woman. She meant me as a black woman, as a black person. You know, we're not accustomed to people like you in leadership roles. I'm sorry. She said she was being apologetic. And, uh, um, And I think that's where the problem lies. When I was in Litchfield Diocese, I said to an archdeaconry group, uh, it was an archdeacon's visitation and I went along to it and I said to this group, so it's quite a decent number of people, I said, what if you have a vacancy? And I applied, would you consider me? And a lovely elderly lady popped her hand up. She said, we don't have any black people here, so why would we employ you? And I smiled and I said, oh, isn't that interesting? So white priests can go to inner city London, which is predominantly black and minister. White priests can go to Africa and Asia, but a black priest can't come here. Hmm, interesting. And, and you were talking about visibility. Yeah. So you are a visible black priest in mm. our society mm. here in the UK. I'm a visible priest who happens to be black. Who happens to be black. And so <laughs> do you feel particular responsibility in terms of fostering vocations in the black, Asian and ethnic minority communities? I have always felt a sense of responsibility. I try to encourage others to take part in leadership roles within the church. And so when you are at that level encouraging others, then you know you have to set an example. So the setting of example that I do, in effect, is that I overexert myself, um, but I feel a huge responsibility. And I'm not doing it for me, and I'm not doing it for my girls either, because both girls have grown up with a mother that is confident and so they are now confident women in their own right, established in their own right and taking their place. But there are lots of others who are not. And so I feel a huge sense of responsibility. I go to schools. Um, I try to attend services at the cathedral when I know there's going to be children there because I want them to see another face of the Church of England. And we're here to stay. I'm not going to be anything else. I'm going to be Anglican until the day I die, because that's who I am. And uh, um, even though I may not be happy um, with the way things are in terms of the um, measly numbers of of black people in leadership roles within the church, um, you know, if you look at the Pentecostal churches, you know, they're young uh, black uh, people who are absolutely engaged and they are engaged because they can see images of themselves they just don't see it in the church of england and so it's very difficult for them to um to offer themselves a ministry there but we're getting you know we're getting one or two you know coming through and i you know when, whenever someone calls me up and says i'm thinking about ministry can i come and see you i make time i clear the diary and i make time for them because it's a priority yeah. for it you and so that's what we do me. about yeah. our priorities that's right so do do you think that the church of england is actively racist or just a kind of passive racism in that it's just not a priority in your experience you have you experienced racism within the church i don't know whether it you you can even refer to it as passive or or, or 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 active. Um, when I was in when I was in uh, Litchfield Diocese, I recall um, a family refusing me doing their father's and their mother's funeral, and that was about the fact that I was black. 
I don't know what they thought I was going to do to 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 them. Um, and what what did that provoke in you? Hurt, hurt, and uh, um, it's painful to be rejected. It's a human uh, emotion, but I I normally pull myself together. Um, with the thought, Rose, you do a darn good funeral. So it is their loss. So you, um, as you just mentioned, you have um, three children. You've got two mm. daughters and a, and son, a son. And they are mixed race. Mm-hmm. And um, what advice do you give? Actually, I don't often refer to them as mixed do race. Not. No, because there is one human race. It's one human race, not different races, no. but one human race. So they're not mixed race. They just happen to be half Jamaican and half English. <laughs> and as, as their mother, how yes. do you, um, what advice do you give them in terms of navigating a world where mm-hmm. prejudices yes. do exist? Yes. What you have to do with your children is you have to give them confidence. You have to grow them up as confident young men and women because they're going to meet it. It's no point shielding them from it. They are going to meet it somewhere along the line. So if you grow them up to be confident men and women, then when they meet it, they can stand back and say, actually, this is not about me. This is about you. You have the problem. You deal with it. This is not about me. And so my advice to to parents with children from minority ethnic backgrounds is that you educate them and you give them the tools that are necessary so that they can feel good about who they are as children of God. I know that I am a child of God. And so it is irrelevant what you think of me um, because I'm a princess, I'm an heir, you know? I'm made in the image of God. But luckily, I also know that you are made in the image of God. And because I know that, I know that I mistreat you as a child of God, etc. So I think it is an ignorance. It's a level of ignorance that others display. And although what they do or say may be painful, the first thing I do is to acknowledge the pain and the hurt that I feel. But I pull myself together and in recognition that this is not about me, it is about them. And they need to be healed. They need to be made whole. They need to become more educated. Yeah. And uh, do you think being a parent has, um, has changed the kind of priest that you are? I don't know whether it has changed it or whether it is simply... Um, whether it is simply informed the way I do priesthood. Probably it has. It has informed it. Um, there is a, a certain richness of being and way of being that that comes with motherhood that enables you to see through different lenses, I think. Um, so it's, it's, I think it simply informs um, who you are and, and how you conduct your, your ministry. When you've previously been asked about your churchmanship, you've Mm. replied, I don't belong in a box. Do you think this breadth Mm -hmm. makes you truly Anglican? Mm. Well, Anglicanism is known for its breadth. It's one of its um, great advantages, but it is also actually, (laughs) its greatest advantage is also its Achilles heel. I, I've never liked being put in a box and to be identified with, with this. Why? Um, there's that wonderful passage in Corinthians where Paul says, you know, you know, did I die for you? You know, did I baptize any of you? You know, where people are saying, I am of Apollos and I am of Cephas and I am this and I am that. Hang on, it is Christ who died for you. So I don't want to, I don't want to be associated exclusively with this tradition in the church or that tradition. We use these traditions to beat people. It's actually childish, frankly, um, the way in which you see people saying, oh, you're that and you're that and I'm this. No, I don't, I, it's immature, frankly. I, I'm sorry, I find it to be rather immature to be um, labelled. Um, and some people don't like me saying that. Some people 
think that I'm not being honest uh, and that I do belong to. I don't. And actually, my thing is, if I'm called to a church, what is important to me is not that they have from this tradition or that. I don't care which tradition they're from. If I'm called to be at that church, whatever they are, I become. I become what they are because it's important, you know, I'm called there to serve them. And, you know, I've seen so many times where the clergy have gone somewhere and they change, try to change the people to be like them. Any changing must be about becoming like Christ. And that does not carry a label. And that's your your model of of priesthood. And you previously said that People who don't agree with the ordination of women um, cannot live with the Church of England ordaining women um, should by all means go. That's what you said. Go to Rome. Join the ordinaria. <laughs> don't stay and make demands of the church. <laughs> did I say that? You did. <laughs> but do you still hold this view? The, the, problem, the problem for the Church of England and, and has been over the whole sort of priesthood um, thing is that I, what I saw... I saw a church bending over backwards. And you try bending over backwards and see what happens. You fall. You fall because there's no great balancing act to do. And I think the church has desperately tried a balancing act to to hold together people who don't want to be held together. Um, You know, there has been attempts. There's been a real genuine attempt by the church to try and hold as many people together. But if people don't want to be held together, then you've got to let them go. You've got to give them permission to go. I've always been very clear that this is not my church. This is God's church. I've also been very clear that I do not need to protect God's church because the God that I serve is a big God. And you know, if he's a big boy, he's gonna look after his church himself. And so all I need to do is to be faithful to the gospel. That's what I'm called to be. And I think that's what we're all called to be, to be faithful to the gospel. So we've just spent so much time, so much resources, so much energy fighting with one another about whether women, I actually took part in a, in an even song once at General Synod, And we had the readings from Luke 10. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And then we went right back afterwards to debating. And I listened to people standing up at the, the, the microphone saying why we shouldn't have women. And I'm thinking, did they hear that gospel that we had? So you see, we... We, we're just, you know, we've pulled the lens down and it's, you know, we're fighting for this. And that. I, I just think that as a church, our energy should be spent on witnessing to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, not in fighting. And uh, all those years when I felt that God was calling me and we didn't have priests, I didn't say, right, I'm going to take up my marbles and go and find another church that ordains women because I believe that this is what God had called me to and that I had to be faithful to what God had called me to. Maybe they think that they are being faithful to what God has called them to. I don't know. Um, but, you know, there comes a time when you you have to, if this is not what you think it is, then you've got to make that decision. Mm. And in light of this, do you think that uh, Philip North, who, who doesn't agree with the ordination of women, was right to turn down becoming a diocesan bishop? That's a very painful... Um, you know, it, it is very sad for me that he was put in that particular situation. He found himself in that particular situation. And I know it would have been very painful for him very painful for his family and also very painful for the church and in particular the women in the diocese. Um, I think part of the problem is that the church has gotten itself into a situation where it says, you know, we want to hold everybody together. And I understand that. I see that. 
And we, you know, if we cannot find a way as the people of God to live together, then we have no integrity in trying to speak to the world about how we live together. That's the reality of it. And I like to think of it in relation to a marriage. In a marriage, you have two different people coming together from different backgrounds, from different ways of doing things. And we come together as one. And there are times when we don't agree. And we've got to ask ourselves, how are we going to continue being married when we don't agree on this? And it means finding a way to live together. And so, you know, I believe the reason behind him um, withdrawing his acceptance is the fact that as a diocesan bishop, you have to be a sign of unity. And uh, there were not all of them, but there were some women there who says, actually, we are struggling. We're struggling to, um, to, to have you in that role because you don't accept my ministry. And you've been based uh, in the Diocese of London for some mm. time. And you have had a bishop who doesn't ordain women, well, actually doesn't ordain any one priest, I think, as a sign of preserving that unity, perhaps. Is that something that women in the Diocese of London have been feeling and almost have just had to wait um, for a new bishop to come? I, I don't want to speak for the other women. I can speak for myself, though. I, I, I love Bishop Richard. You know, he is my bishop. But I have found it painful. I have found it painful that he has that he has taken that particular position, um, and as you know, it has always left me asking why it is that we are the ones left to make the sacrifice, the women. Um, so I can tell you that I have found it a very painful thing, um, and and very painful when the church says, uh, you know. On the one hand, there are no theological reasons why women should not be ordained. And then it speaks with a forked tongue because it says, ah, but that group of people over there, they don't agree for theological reasons. So which is it? Are there theological reasons or are there not? Mm. What then do you think mutual flourishing can look like? That's a good question. I think the church genuinely, um, when it asks for mutual flourishing, is really wanting. And this is the sad thing about it all, that the church is really wanting to hold people together. It really wants to. And we've just got to find a way to ask, what does this mean? What will it mean? Um, And if you have... uh, um, if somebody, you see, it, it, it's, 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 it's difficult because if you have somebody saying your ministry is not, um, what's the word I can think of? It's not even that it's not legal. Your ministry, I cannot accept your ministry because I've got a wonderful friend who does not believe in the ordination of women. And, you know, I didn't know this. I didn't know that he did not agree with women's ordination. We were at a diocesan synod when he spoke. And boy, I felt as if someone had used a dagger. I I, I wept. I wept. I did not know that he did not believe it. I still love him. Um... And and that, for me, is flourishing. We're here in the church together. And, uh, um, but how does one exercise a leadership role within the church in a way that says that there are people... For example, there are people who come into the church now who will say, I don't want that bishop, you know, to ordain me because that bishop has ordained women. I personally don't think that that should happen. That's my view. Um, I think we are creating a long-term problem. There are many other provinces that have said, we are now going to ordain women as priests. 
and they ordain women as priests. And that's it. <laughs> so, yeah, it doesn't quite have to be so messy, perhaps. It so doesn't just, have to be so messy. So I on. think our... Um, uh, us saying that we have to... I, I wonder... It's because we're actually trying to undo the mess, you know? But sometimes we have to live with the mess and stop pretending that we're going to smooth it out. You know, there are some garments you're trying to iron and you... Gosh, you've spent, you bought the steamer and you've done this and you've done that, but the creases are still there. So you've just got to live with the crease sometimes. We've got to live with the crease and we've got to live hand in hand and we're going to have to love, we, we have to love the person who thinks that you should not exist in that role. And that's a huge challenge. And I think it's much better to do that than to pretend that it's all hanky dory. So just one final question before we finish up. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. If you could say one thing to women who feel perhaps called to leadership in the church but are in more conservative churches where female leadership is not recognised, what would you, what would you say to those women? <laughs> a song just came into my head. <laughs> a song just came into my head. Now... If you believe that God has called you, then that has to be tested. And not just tested with your local church, but also tested in the wider church. And so if you are somewhere that they don't believe in the ordination of women and they don't encourage you, then, you know, you've got to get yourself to another church. Get yourself to another church and and test. Have your vocation tested. Um, Very often it is the clergy who tries to get the congregation to adopt a particular position um, on this on this issue, which is which is quite sad. We shouldn't be doing that. We should simply we're there to serve God. Um, it's not even about our leadership. We're just simply there to to serve God in in ways you know, getting alongside people, not talking to them actually about women's rights or black people's rights or it's nothing to do with that it is about the gospel of our lord jesus christ well rose thank you so much for coming in today to speak with me so you've been listening to the profile with uh, me katie stock and the reverend rose hudson wilkin who is chaplain to the speaker of the house of commons